Well, Lisa put a bug in my ear last night about singing this song. I haven't sung this in years, so y'all pray for me. I'm not sure how it's going to go. But uh, it was a song based on Psalm 34, where we read, This poor man cried unto the Lord, and he heard him and delivered him out of all his distresses, all his troubles. And uh, that's the name of it, This Poor Man. And most of us, that, that title tends to apply to us, right? And uh, there's a lot of ways to th think about sin. Um, sometimes we view it as that which makes us guilty, and so we stand in need of justification. Uh, it may be that which enslaves us, and as we just saying, we need redemption. We need to be freed. Maybe that which defiles us. We need a cleansing, a washing. Uh, but one of the ways the scripture uses to illustrate what sin is is by the figure of debt. We're indebted. We use that often, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so it's, it's looking at it sort of in a commercial sense. And that's what I was trying to say in this song, uh, this poor man in more ways than one. Okay? So here goes. We'll see what happens. Once I was poor in the eyes of God, poor for my sin against me was charged. My debt only grew with each passing day. The price law demanded I just couldn't pay. Jesus, come save me, save this poor man. I cannot pay the price, you only can. He heard my cry, made me Paid with his lifeblood to save this poor man. Deceived for so long by my hopes and dreams, I thought my good works his balance would swing. But could I obey to his last command? Would be but my duty, it won't pay for sin. Jesus, come save me, save this poor man. I cannot pay the price you only can. He heard my cry, made me understand. He paid with his life's blood to save this poor man. Now The faith that he gave has made us one. No more 
I stand in my filthy dress, but clothed in the garments of His righteousness. Jesus, come save me, save this poor man. I cannot pay the price. You To save this poor man, he paid with his life's blood to save this poor man. I'm rusty. Interesting enough, it reminds me of an illustration I've often used about God's grace and salvation of illustrating two young ladies that are both a billion dollars in debt. Now, don't ask me how they got a billion dollars in debt, but nevertheless, that's their situation. And this is back in the time when debt meant something. You know, they put you away when you couldn't pay your bills. So they're desperate in order to pay what they owe. And so one of the girls, her plan is, is to go to work and work as hard as she can. But the problem is she's just earning minimum wage and every day her expenses are more than her income. So rather than getting herself out of debt, she's just working herself lower and deeper. You ever been in that situation? You just, every day goes by, you're deeper in debt. And that is of course what happens to those who try under the law to manufacture by their own good works this price, this payment. Well, the other girl, she has a different plan. Uh, she marries a multi-billionaire. Problem solved, right? And I'm sure you're sitting here thinking, yeah, of course, you know, a preacher, the, the problem is not deciding you're gonna marry a multi-billionaire uh, the problem is finding a multi-billionaire that wants to marry you, right? And of course, that is the good news of the gospel, is that we have one who is infinitely rich in the very commodity we need, righteousness, who is willing to be wed to a poor sinner like me, and so that I stand in him covered in his righteousness. So that's an interesting way of looking at the gospel message. Well, we're going to continue our study this morning about who is Jesus, specifically asking, was Jesus God? And we spent, to say a lot of time last night is an understatement, but we spent a lot of time last night uh, looking at this uh, from the Old Testament scriptures. And I hope that what you realized is that we're, we're sort of coming at this from a different direction, that most of the time... We don't really, when we're facing that question, we don't go to the Old Testament. We want to turn to the New Testament scriptures. But, but notice, uh, you know who Marcion was? One of the early heretics of the early church. Marcion lived old, middle, middle second century. 
Uh, you remember Polycarp martyred at this same time. They knew one another. Uh, in fact, Marcion saw Polycarp right before he was taken to his death. He said, Polycarp, do you remember me? And Polycarp said, yes, I remember the offspring of Satan. <laughs> that was his estimation of Marcion. Marcion basically, it's hard to describe, he excised the Old Testament from his Bible. They literally, the, the Bibles they used in the Marcionite churches had no Old Testament, and the New Testament did not start until Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Had nothing about uh, his birth, nothing about John the Baptist, because you see that connects you to the Old Testament, doesn't it? So his idea was just sever everything uh, that came before the, Jesus was sort of dropped in on the scene, suddenly doing these miracles and teaching these things. We're doing the opposite of what Marcion did. We're turning our attention back to that Old Testament testimony. And what we've seen is not only do we see Christ prophesied of, and I'm sure when I said I'm going to look at his deity from the Old Testament, that's probably the first thing that came through your mind. We're going to look at some of these prophecies back there that tend to imply that he must have been God. Okay, It's a proper way of doing it. And we're not, we didn't do it by looking at the pictures of the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is replete with all sorts of portraits, illustrations found in the ceremonial law, everything from the... Uh, Yom Kippur, the high priest laying his head on the scapegoat and dying, the blood being sprinkled in there. I think particularly of the one Jesus mentions in John 3, of, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You remember that, extra, that situation? Everybody who was bitten by the snake looks at the serpent on the pole and is healed. There's a wonderful picture as Jesus goes ahead and explains. That's a picture of what I'm going to do. And so we have these wonderful portraits in the types and shadows of the Old Testament law that point us to Christ. You can take that route, and that's a very profitable study. What we did instead was not look at the prophecies or the pictures. We looked at the presence of Christ in the Old Testament. The fact that this one who now appears in the New Testament, of course, did not have his beginning in a manger in Bethlehem, nor as an embryo in the womb of the Virgin Mary. No, this one had his, well, beginning. He didn't have a beginning, as we're going to see, because I want you to turn to John chapter 1. That's a good question. When did he begin? John chapter 1. What we're doing this morning is looking at this same question, but looking at it through the eyes of the apostles and the apostolic men that wrote the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they, of course, are wrestling with this question. We can see it all the way through the Gospels. They're wrestling. Who in the world is this person? On the one hand, you know, he seems like a normal guy. And on the other hand, he's doing these things that nobody but God could do. Who, who is this Jesus fella? Had you been living in that time, that would have been the question on your mind. Who is this? And that's what we're going to look at. What is their testimony about who Jesus was? Start, start here in John 1, very familiar passage of Scripture, but I hope after our study last night that it will mean more to you this morning. Beginning in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. Notice 
In the beginning, the Logos didn't become, didn't start. The word Logos was in the beginning. In other words, whoever this person is had no beginning, clearly implied. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Clear identification of whoever this Logos is, that he is in some sense distinct from God. Notice, it's not the same person, but in another sense, he is identical with God, as we say, in essence. He has the nature of God. He is a divine entity, a divine personality. Notice how what we would later call the Trinity is being sort of thrown at us here, the way John describes this. And as I want to remind you, remember you have Philo of Alexandria over there in Alexandria, Egypt, using the very term logos in his trying to figure out how did a God who is invisible, who is spiritual, create the heavens and the earth? What's the connection between this infinite, invisible God with the physical universe? And his answer, well, it was this mediatory thing he called the Logos. So this term was a term that's floating around in that day. And certainly John is not echoing what Philo is teaching. He's using the term in a completely different sense. But this concept is out there. Let me, let me try to explain. I am physical, human. You're physical, human. How do I communicate with you? How do, I, how do you know what's in my head? If I have a thought, how do I communicate that thought to you? Well, it has to go through my physical body, doesn't it? I have to be able to enunciate that make sounds with my mouth, my tongue, and those sound waves, you could see them, you'd understand what I'm talking about, they're wiggling. (laughs) The high ones are going real fast and the low ones are going real slow, but that's what's happening. I'm communicating sound to you through my mind, my immaterial self, whatever my soul is, is using my body to convert my thoughts into audible sounds, okay? that then fall on your ear and your body, your brain, is able to process that so that your invisible, your uh, immaterial self, your soul, is able to grasp what my concept is, what's here in my head. I can't just sit here and read your mind. You know, well, it could be because his mind's empty, but I don't know. (laughs) I'm just seeing a blank screen right now. (laughs) But... You don't, you can't understand what I'm thinking or, or, you know, what I'm conceiving by just staring at me. And I'm sort of glad you can't. Wouldn't you hate to have a little window up here that every thought that passed through your mind was projected here on a screen on your forehead? Thank the Lord we, he didn't greet us that way. But notice that what's happening is that my idea, my thoughts... It, are, are having to be translated through a medium, through some sort of, and that's when I use the mediator. Something has to be able to mediate that immaterial thing, whatever this idea or thought in my head is, it has to translate it into a material thing that your material body can pick up and transmit it to your immaterial thing. You see the process? 
And so what we see going on here is John is using this expression, logos, which means a word or a message, something of that nature, that this inaudible God is giving an audible expression. That's who Jesus, that's the second person of the Trinity. As we're going to see this morning, that's what the apostles are testifying to, that he is the audible, understandable part of the inaudible, unknowable God. Otherwise, God would be, as the Greeks called him, the agnoston, the unknown God. You can't know him. Remember, Paul went to Athens. They had an altar to the unknown God. And he said, that's the one I'm coming here to tell you about. Well, how do you know this unknown God? We've had his son, the Logos, come and express to us the knowledge of the unknowable, the otherwise unknowable God. Is this sort of falling into place? So we saw that throughout the Old Testament, didn't we? Sometimes it's a word. The word of the Lord came to me and said, strange language. The word of the Lord came and stood by Samuel. <laughs> what do you mean? We begin to realize the word of the Lord is not so much a message, but a person who brings a revelation, a message. And we're going to see that here. So we saw it all through the Old Testament last night. If you weren't here, I'm sorry. We just don't have time to go back. Trust me. We don't have time to go back through all of that again. But get the tape or the recording if you can and, and sit down with your Bible and follow uh, what we explored last night. We're seeing that here, aren't we? This word. Notice in verse 3, this is important. Speaking of the Logos, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice that this Logos is defined to us not as a created thing. You realize there's just two sorts, two categories of beings. There's the created beings and there's the uncreated beings. Now how many creatures are in the created? Notice I use the word creature. That's, I'm already playing my hand here. They're created things, created beings. How many created beings we got out there? Well, there's you and me and... Your dogs and your birds and your bees and your bugs. All sorts of things made, created. How many uncreated beings are there? Just one. And notice this Logos. Which category do we sort him into? The created category or the uncreated category? He is clearly in the uncreated category because all things were made by him. He himself was unmade. He made all other things. So he then, back to that Greek problem, how does this invisible God, spiritual being, create physical things? There is a mediation of the sec what we call the second person of the Trinity who is able then to create the physical realm. And that's what... John is expressing to us right here. Notice that we go on through this chapter and we find the uh, ministry of John the Baptist being detailed to us. Um, he comes, but I want you to skip down to verse 14 because this is where the Logos part of this picks up again. John will say, and the Logos, the word, was made flesh, that means to become human, 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember last night that we said one of the ways that there was an expression of this invisible, unknowable God was through what the scriptures call his glory. We saw it with Moses, remember, up on Mount Sinai. He's seeing this visible cloud that glows fire by night. Here is the glory that is being expressed. And this glory, we begin to see here, again, is another way of describing this mediation. We're going to see that you can't see God. Remember that from last night? No man, you see God, what happens? Over you go, you're dead. But there is a way that we can perceive God that we're going to explore here. But notice, we saw his glory. The, only, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's what John is testifying to. Now, he didn't look like it. If you saw Jesus, met him on the road back in that day, would you have said, hey, there's God right there? Isaiah says, we saw no beauty in him that we should desire him. There was nothing, you know, we have these portraits of Jesus. I don't know who thought up a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, but that's typically how he's portrayed in paintings and so forth. Uh, the fact is, is that we would not have immediately seen him and said, there goes God. There's God walking down the road. He didn't look like it. Notice that he has taken on flesh, and the flesh is acting as a veil to veil who he really is. Uh, I've illustrated it like you have a lamp that's a globe, you know, it's shining, and then you want to try to cover up that light. Well, you get you a cloth, and you put it over the globe, and you try to keep that light from shining out. That's basically what's going on here. The flesh, the human side of Jesus, is veiling his divinity. It's hiding it from us. But let's suppose your cloth is a little too small. And you notice, well, there's some light leaking out over here, so I slide it that way to cover it up. And when I do, now light's leaking out over here, and I go that way, and now a little light. And that's what John is pointing out. He was veiled, and yet in spite of that, we saw his glory. It's so interesting that almost every time you see something that seems to point to the humiliation and humbleness of Christ, the lowliness and meekness of our Lord, at the same time you see some manifestation of his glory. I mean, if he's going to be born in a, in a manger, the angels are going to come and sing. Shepherds are going to show up. Magi are going to come bring treasure. In other words, here he is born in the lowliest of circumstances and yet alongside it is this. And you see that all through his ministry. Remember that time out on the Sea of Galilee? He's tired. He's sleeping in the boat. And you say, you won't tell me that's God sleeping there in the boat? And then the storm came up and what did he do? He got up and said, peace be still. And the waves stopped and the wind stopped. And what did they say? What manner of man is this? You see how the disciples little by little are being confronted with the fact that he may look like an ordinary man to you and me, but there's something different. There's something else going on here, and that's what John is saying here. In spite of the fact that he was veiled in flesh, we beheld his glory, the glory of God we saw in him. 
If he dies on a cross, you say God dies? Well, he had to be made man in order to die, you see. But as he dies, the centurion says, you know, the rocks are rent, people are resurrected. And the centurion said, surely this was the son of God. You see, the same circumstance that illustrates his lowliness, meekness, and humility also in the same context, you see this display of glory. Okay, well, we better leave. I can preach a sermon on that, and if I do, we won't get through. So let me keep plowing. Let's go a little further. Uh, Verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, I want you to think about the importance of the witness of John the Baptist. We sometimes overlook that. But remember that it is John the Baptist that is tying us back to the Old Testament. Because the ministry of John the Baptist is described for us in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. You remember the passage? Maybe you better go back and look at it. Isaiah 40. Verse 3. Isaiah 40 verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now I want you to think about that. Who is this voice in the wilderness? Every one of the gospel writers identify this voice in the wilderness with who? John the Baptist. This is the witness of John. That's why the witness of John is so critical to establishing who Jesus is. So here is a voice in the wilderness preparing a way, a road, a highway it's sometimes expressed. The idea is a king is coming and his servants are out there ahead of him building a road. They're knocking off the, you know, every low place is made, raised up. And the high places are, it's like when they build a highway here. They knock off the tops of the hills and they fill in the gullies so that you make a plain straight road for the king. Okay? But who is the one for whom John is preparing this way? And notice he's not out there with a D9 cat moving rock. The way is not a physical road. It's a spiritual road that's made plain in the New Testament. But who is it a road for? Well, let's read on here in Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the... See those little caps? Remember what that means? That's Yahweh, Jehovah. This is God. He is preparing a road for God to come down. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Elohim, another word, sort of the generic word for divinity. Again, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low. He's filling in the low places, knocking off the tops of the high places. The rough places are being made plain. And who is coming down the road? Do you see the expression? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God's glory. Remember we saw God's glory last night? Moses up on the mountain? The glory of God is going to come down that road and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. In other words, John 
is preparing a way for God to come. Yahweh is going to visit his people. The glory of God, this manifestation of God that we saw so often last evening. That's who's coming down this road. And so when John says, this is the one that I was talking about. And you can read on in John's gospel and see that. He witnesses that it is Jesus who is this person that he was making the way for, the road. But that means that this person must be more than just a human being. He must be Yahweh. Because that's who the prophet said John was making the road for. You follow my drift here? God's coming. He's come. That's him right there. That's the witness of John the Baptist. Well, let's go a little further. Again, verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spoke. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. That is interesting. Although physically speaking, John was about six months older than Jesus, in the real sense, John says, No, he came after me, but he was actually before me. We'll see that again here in a little bit. And of his fullness have we all received grace for grace, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And then this 18th verse. No man hath seen God at any time. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? Didn't Moses see him up there on the mountain? Didn't the elders of Israel? Remember we read that about Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the elders of Israel. They saw God. They and yet here we have John saying, no man has seen God at any time. Well, then what did they see? He goes on to explain the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. This is the role of the Logos who here is identified as the only begotten son. He is the mediator. He is the one who mediates the presence of the invisible God that you cannot see. Do you see how all this ties together now? Mm -hmm. This invisible, infinite, omnipresent God who is infinite spirit that your eyes cannot see has been revealed, manifested, or the word here is declared. It's actually the term, well, it's the word we get our word exegesis from. Literally, you would say, the only begotten son, he has exegeted him. To exegete is to bring meaning out of a text, to explain. So here, the son of God is being identified as this one who is able to present to us the God we cannot see, the God we cannot hear, the God we cannot touch and feel. But the son of God has exegeted he has brought him to light he has manifested him to us you see what i'm what i'm hoping is you were here last night you're now seeing that if we put all of that testimony of the old testament together we saw so many ways sometimes it's a glory sometimes this personage appeared as a human being sometimes as a light sometimes as a fire Sometimes, however, as a word, sometimes as the angel of the Lord, the various ways that we see over and over again something mediating the presence of this invisible God 
to man. And here John sort of brings it all together for us. That this is indeed the action of the Son of God. He has been, his role as the second person of the Trinity is to mediate the presence of the first person of the Trinity. That's his role. We'll, we'll talk more about that as we go. Okay, are you, are you with me so far? Okay, good, just check it. There will be a quiz at the end. <laughs> no, I won't do that to you. I couldn't pass it myself, so I... <laughs> There are several places in the New Testament record that Christ is uh, declared by the apostolic authors as present in the Old Testament. One of those is John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Again, he's referring to Isaiah, and I'm assuming here that most of you are uh, familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. It's where God, uh, where Isaiah is given a vision of the throne room of God. He says, I saw God high and lifted up. Uh, remember the cherubim shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Uh, you remember the story? Okay. So here we have this being referred to. Verse 37, John 12, 37. We read, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. And, and what this is explaining is the unbelief of Israel. Because had we read on in Isaiah 6, God commissions, you remember he asked for somebody to go. And what does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. You know, we do that, I say, here am I, send Wayne. You know, I, but God says, no, I'm going to send you. And here's your ministry, Isaiah. I want you to go put this people to sleep. I'm following in the steps of Isaiah as a preacher of the gospel. I, my, my son, by the way, is an anesthetist in the Air Force, and uh, he says he's just been following the family tradition. I've been putting people to sleep for years, and he's just following in my shoes. Uh, but notice that's the ministry of John, I mean of Isaiah, is go to this people so that hearing they don't hear, they make their eyes heavy, droopy. Some of you got droopy eyes this morning. Didn't get enough sleep last night. I want you to go put these people to sleep so that hearing they don't hear, seeing they don't see. If they got the evidence right in front of them, they still don't see it. That's your ministry, Isaiah. And so that's what John is referring to here. And he says, so this is happening in Jesus' day. Jesus has done all these miracles right under their nose, and yet they refuse to believe on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Notice this is God's judicial judgment on a nation who thrusts away the light. And this happens progressively in the ministry of Christ. It sort of culminates when they accuse him after he does a miracle of doing it by how? Whose power? The power of Beelzebub? Oh yeah, you did the miracle, but you did it. The devil was doing it through you. You see, once you make that step, more miracles isn't going to solve anything. 
You understand? Doing another mighty work isn't going to convince anybody. You have made, you have stepped over a line from which there is no recover. You have blasphemed the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit producing through Jesus these miracles, you see. And so from that there was no recovery. And so when you get sorry for Israel for being sublime, remember it's a judicial hardening. It's a judicial blindness. They had all of this evidence and they shut their eyes to it so God made sure they could not see. I'm sort of glad that happened because if I understand Paul right, it's that that opens the door to filthy Gentiles like you and me. The filthy Gentile world out there who had no right to it, didn't have the fathers and the covenants, didn't have all the, the perks that the Jews had. But the refusal by the Jews to believe, as Paul will explain in Romans 11, opens the door to Gentiles like you and I who come on another basis, another ground. So notice, as we read on here, Verse 41, the conclusion, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw whose glory? If you go back and look at the pronouns in this passage, all of them are pointing to Jesus. So in other words, here is one of those hints that the New Testament writers get it. They're looking back at Isaiah 6 when Isaiah has this vision of God in his glory and saying that's who we saw. Remember, he's the glory of God. That was John's witnesses. It's the glory of God that's coming, the same glory that Isaiah saw 600 years or so before. You see the, the connection? Okay. Let me, let's go to an easier one. This, is, this one's pretty obvious. Go to 1 Corinthians Chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There are several passages, one in Jude, one in 1 Peter, that imply that it was Jesus who accompanied the Israelites through the wilderness. And you remember we saw that last night under the figure of the angel of the Lord. God says, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you to drive out the enemy and all that. But they are to be honest, somewhat ambiguous. It will talk about God, God and the Lord Jesus Christ and then the Lord led his people in Canaan. So it's a little bit ambiguous. Are we talking about God here? Are we talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? Who, who exactly? But there's no ambiguity here. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual food. And all did drink of the same spiritual drink. And here's the important point. For they all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. No ambiguity here. Well, what's he talking about? Well, you know the story in the wilderness of how they came needing water. And uh, Moses hit the rock and out gushed the stream. That happened at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. It happens at the end, again, at the end of the wilderness wanderings. So you have these two occasions where this rock is, in one case, he was supposed to speak to it that second time, instead hit it, and for that he didn't enter Canaan. 
But you got this twice going on. And uh, some of the scholars, if you read commentators on this verse, especially liberal commentators, they will say, oh, all Paul is doing here is rehearsing to us a Jewish myth. Because the Jews, some of the later rabbis said that that rock that they struck and water came out, once they went on their journey, sort of rolled itself up and followed them, rolled along behind them, and then wherever they camp, that rock sort of unfolds and gives them water all the way through their wilderness wandering. So it's this magical rock that is sort of a, what, what's the cartoon thing, the transformers, where everything sort of folds up, and it folds up and then rolls along following Israel through the wilderness. Well, that's nonsense, and that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is there was a rock that did follow them through the wilderness, but it was not that physical rock, as he makes clear in verse 4, they drank of that what? That spiritual rock that followed them. The word here in Greek can mean to follow or it can mean to accompany. And I would take it in that second sense, that that's what he's saying, that the reality, okay, here's the physical rock that you see with your eyes, but there's a spiritual reality, a person behind that rock, the spiritual rock. And it's the spiritual rock, if you read the verse, that is accompanying them through the wilderness wandering. And he makes it clear that rock is who? It's Christ. No ambiguity at all. Then there are all oh, the direct apostolic. I'm having to weed out already. Having to excise certain things. Where do I want to go next? Let's go to Philippians. I mean, that's, that's a great one. They're all good. Philippians 2, one of the classical statements of the apostles on who Jesus was. Here Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And we find this, interestingly enough, nestled uh, in an exhortation to humility. Uh, if you look back in the first verses of this, being like-minded, being of one accord, uh, Verse 3, don't do anything through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. That is the toughest part of the Christian life, to look at others and see them more deserving, more worthy than you. Ooh, that's what we fight all the time. But notice in the middle of this exhortation to lowliness of mind, we find this example of Christ. Look in chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. In other words, this mindset, we would use that term, this way of thinking, let the way Christ thought dwell in you. Well, how did he think? Well, notice, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Stop right there. Uh, a lot of ink has been used trying to explain these words because they are so important. But notice that it is made clear to us that Christ, before he became man, was in the form of God. He was identical with God. He was divine in his nature. But he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Better translation, he thought it not something to be held on to or grasped. 
He would, in other words, there's sense in which we would say, I'm not ever going to let this go. I'll never turn loose of this. But he let go. He turned loose of it. And he made, was made of no reputation. You may know that that Greek phrase is the idea that he connoted himself. That's the Greek verb here. It means to empty himself. And a very important question is, okay, what this is telling me that when Christ came into this world, when the word was made flesh, to use John's language, that he emptied himself. He divested himself of something. And the real question is of what? What did he surrender? What did he divest himself of? And many answer, oh, he's talking about his divinity. Well, may I point out to you that it's impossible for him to have given up his divinity. That God is one job you can't quit. Let me put it like that. God, by definition, is an eternal being. Has no beginning, has no end. And we see that's the Logos, right? In the beginning was the Word. Okay? So he has no beginning, he has no end. That's the definition of this God we worship. So, no, you can't give up being God. You can't quit that job. If you can quit it, you never had it. Put it like that. You never were God in the first place if you can quit being God. So, in other words, it cannot be referring to his essential divinity. Well, what is it referring to? Well, very obviously it's referring to that glory. And you recall that in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he begins to pray, God, I'm coming back to you uh, to receive the glory that I have with you before the foundation of the world. We saw in the Old Testament how often he comes in glory. He doesn't come meek and mild. He comes, remember Joshua met that warrior out there on the plains of Jericho and said, are you for us or against us? We're in big trouble if you're against us. <laughs> uh, he saw the glory of God, the shining light. This, well, we went into that last night. You get the picture. He has divested himself of his visible glory. That's what I said a moment ago. When you came into his presence, you'd say, well, of course, that's God right over there. No, didn't look like it. But I think it's more than that. I would put it like this, that he divested himself of the perks of divinity. You say, well, the trappings. You say, well, what do you mean? He did not give up his attributes because you can't. But he can surrender the independent use of those attributes. In other words, it's when he came into this world, we have God mode and man mode. Like you switch, God mode, man mode. When Christ came into this world, he operated in his earthly ministry in man mode, not God mode. He operated as a man in utter dependence upon his father's will, upon his father's power, upon his father's supply, and by the way, this is why he can be spoken of as our example. Because if he's operating in God mode, how can he be my example? I'm not operating in God mode. 
You say, well, I can't be my example. After all, he was God. Yeah, he was, but he wasn't operating as God. He was operating as a man. He came into this world to live his life as a human being, just like you and I. And in his life, it's a life of faith. It's a life of looking to his father for everything he needs, for his direction, for his supply. He's utterly dependent upon his father. And he does, as we're going to see, nothing but what his father shows him to do. And so because he's operating in man mode rather than God mode, even though he is God, don't misunderstand me, but that's what he's surrendering. He's to get from Galilee, Nazareth, down to Jerusalem for a feast. He's got to walk those 60 miles. He doesn't float. He's got to take about three days to walk with everybody else. To get from there and back and then turn around and do it again. Do you, do you understand? He gets hot. He gets tired. That's why he's sleeping in that boat. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. Because he's operating in man mode. Same mode you and I operate in. I don't have that other mode. But I know what the man mode is. And here we see God in the flesh operating as a man here on earth. And why is that important? He came, he was born under the law. That he is now fulfilling the law as a man was supposed to do. The one man who fulfills it absolutely perfectly. The rest of us fall miserably short. Here's the man who comes and fulfills the law as God intended to produce a righteousness. That there's no fault in him. There's no imperfection. He's a lamb without spot or blemish. There is no flaw at all in his character. And we see him prove that in the way he operates. You see why that's important? Because that's the righteousness that's going to come to me. I need a perfect man's righteousness as my covering before the judgment of God. And that's what he came to produce. He goes on here. We don't have time to exegete this entire passage, but no, you know the rest of it, that he kept going down, down, in the form of a servant made in the likeness of man. As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. Down, down, down. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. Notice that wherefore. There's a reason that's therefore. Okay? In other words, because Jesus went to the lowest spot, his father has elevated him to the highest spot, giving him a name that's above every name. In other words, when we come into the kingdom of Christ, who's going to be the king? Well, it's going to be Christ. Well, why does he get to be king? Because he's the boss's son? You know, a little paternalism going on here. No, because he deserved it, he earned it. No one ever started so high, went so low as Jesus. And because he did, his father has now elevated this God-man to the highest seat, to the very throne of God. And so here we see Paul explaining why you and I should have a humility of mind and how we think of one another 
by giving us the great example of our Savior. Just let, you, you just, it's easy, folks. Just think like Jesus. Just think like Jesus. Have his mind. Let it be in you. And then Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews 1. Yeah, I'm burning up all my time here. We don't have anywhere to go, do we? We've got plenty of food over here. <laughs> well, I know the uh, mind can, can absorb only what the bottom can endure after a little while. I, I've been in your shoes or your seat. And uh, I remember getting up to preach in Mexico one time as a dentist there out of Shreveport named Bo Verde, old Bo. Never had met the guy, never, first time he's sitting next to me and, and the preacher's introducing me. I'm fixing to get up and preach and he leans over and he says, I've never heard a bad short sermon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> First time I ever heard anything come out of the man's mouth. Anyway, but, uh, so I've been there where you are, but let's try to plow, plow ahead. Here in Hebrews, here's another one of these statements about who Jesus is. The writer of Hebrews, my personal opinion is Paul, but I could be wrong. Whoever wrote it is certainly Pauline, someone associated with the Apostle Paul, because he uses so many of the concepts that we find in Paul's other letters. But here we find the beginning of how he lays out who this person is. God, who at sundry times and divers manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Messengers, okay, human intermediaries, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So we've got this contrast between others that God spoke through and now God is speaking. And literally in the Greek, it's in son. He's, he's in prophet mode and now he's in son mode he's speaking through the son he has hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things and notice this by whom also he made the worlds here we have it repeated as we find it about four places in the new testament that this divine person this son this logos created all things he's the creator he's not created that's an important distinction but notice verse 3 who, speaking back of the sun, being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of his father's glory, the effulgence, the radiant splendor of his father's glory. We run into that before? What was Moses seeing up there on the mount? This radiant glow. When the glory of God would fill the temple and the priest couldn't even stand to be in the building. We see that in the Old Testament. What is it? It's this bright, glowing cloud that drove them out of the place. They couldn't even stay in the room. So he, this sun, is this radiant splendor and the express image of his person. Again, we struggle with uh, what is this actually saying? It's speaking of the fact that he is the exact stamp, a representation of God's person here. Hypostasis in the word Greek, it doesn't really fit because after all, uh, this is not really speaking so much of the person of God, although this is true. 
but it's of, of the underlying essence of God, who and what God is, that he is the exact stamp, it, the caricature is the Greek term here. It's like they would use to stamp something in clay or wax, and so that you get an exact imprint of the image on the stamp. That's the words that are being used, that this sun is not only the brightness of God's glory, but he's the exact representation of God's essence. Let that sink in. The creator himself, the one, the, the agent of God in creation who is the exact resemblance of God Almighty. He's the one, as the verse goes on, to speak of the one who purged our sins and is now set down at the right hand of God. And what follows is a contrast between the Son and angels. There are seven Old Testament citations in the verses that follow in this chapter setting the Son over against angels. Now keep in mind, last night I told you the word angel is a slippery little devil because angel can mean a being as we're going to see is meant here, the ontological angel, what we generally refer to as an angel, or angel can just mean a function, a job description. The word means a messenger, both in Greek and Hebrew. So we have to be clear what we're talking about. Here, as you read the rest of this chapter, it's very apparent that we're talking about angel in the ontological sense, the nature of a being, an angelic being, and that's the way we usually refer to it, correct? Okay, so let's just make that clear that that's what the author here is doing. And he's going to have the seven citations where from the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament is so important. That's where he's drawing these things to identify to us who Jesus is and the distinction between Jesus and angels. And you say, well, big deal, what does that mean? Well, go talk to a Jehovah's Witness. That's who they believe Jesus is. He's the archangel. He's the first created angel. But here, the writer is making a distinction between angels and the Son. I'm just going to point out a few of them. In verse 6, one of those citations, he says, again, when he brings the first begotten into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. The difference between the Son and the angels is all the angels were commanded by God to worship the Son. Now let that sink in a minute. Can you just worship any old thing you want to think you want to worship? Can you worship another angel? You remember that John got in trouble twice in the book of Revelation for bowing down and worshiping an angel. The angel said, Cut it out. <laughs> I'm a servant like you. <laughs> worship God. In fact, the whole first commandment is you will worship no other God. Remember in the temptation, Satan wanted Jesus to bow down and worship him. What did Jesus say? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You worship no one but God. And all the angels are commanded by God to worship the Son. Does it take a genius to figure out what's going on here? We go a little further, and I wish we had time to look at all these citations, but of course we don't. In verse 9, we see him call God.
thou hast, uh, I'm sorry, uh, well, let's back up to verse 8. Well, actually 7. You've got to get a run and jump at it. He says, and of the angels, he says, in other words, here's his description of angels, who, that's God, maketh his angels spirits. Now let that sink in. Angels are made. God made angels. They are spirit beings. That means they have no physical body. Now sometimes they appear in physical form as we saw the two angels with Abraham last night. But they are made entities. But then the contrast, verse 8, but unto the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Here, the Son is being referred to as God, Elohim. Now, it's true that sometimes Elohim is the, it's sort of the generic word for God, and it's in the plural form, gods, literally. But most of the time, when it's used of God, it's connected with a singular verb. It's a strange construction. You've got a plural word connected with a singular verb. In the beginning, Elohim, God's created, bara, singular, the heavens and the earth. In other words, you've got, in some sense, there's a plurality. In another sense, there's a oneness. It's like we see the Trinity in the first verse of the Bible. But this is the distinction. He is God, and the Jehovah's Witness will say, well, yeah, but he's not Jehovah. He's not Yahweh God. He may be one of these lesser gods, but he's not the big one. Oh, the next citation in verse 10, he's citing another passage out of Psalm 102. And if you go back and read Psalm 102, which we don't have time to do, you'll see that it is a psalm directed to Yahweh. Over and over and over, it's praise and so forth to Yahweh. Here it's cited and applied to the Son, thou Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hand. Remember who the creator is? Yes, God created, but through the agency of the Son. That's what the first few verses of Hebrews tells us. So here you have again this idea that Jesus is indeed Yahweh. He is the creator. Angels, on the other hand, Created, things made. Do you see the distinction? Well, let me wrap this up or you're not going to remember a thing I'm saying. Oh, my. i got to make one more point. <laughs> this is, because this is so interesting and, and fascinating to me. I, I realize, however, that I get fascinated by things that other people don't necessarily see as all that exciting. I've learned that over the years, so please forgive me. But I hope some of my excitement about this rubs off on you. What I began to see was a pattern in the New Testament scriptures where New Testament writers would cite an Old Testament verse that is clearly referring to Yahweh, and we've already seen it here in chapter 1, and then substitute Jesus in the spot where in the Old Testament it's Yahweh. And there's many places that happens. Uh, one of which, Ephesians 4, where you see uh, he uh, ascends up on high. I don't know if you remember the passage. 
speaking of Jesus, that he ascended, he won this victory, he ascended to high, and he gave gifts unto men. That's the text there in Ephesians 4. But he's citing from Psalm 68, and there in Psalm 68, it's Yahweh who is ascending up on high. You notice he swapped Yahweh and inserted Jesus in that spot. An easier one for us. Y'all know Romans 10, 13? Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right? Okay, make sure the spirit of drowsiness has not yet taken over, but uh, you're still with me. Okay, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You ever heard that before? You realize this wasn't original with Paul. He is quoting out of Joel chapter 2 about the day of the Lord coming, and Joel says, and it shall come to pass, but whosoever calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Here he cited the same verse, but of course we're not in Hebrew anymore, we're in Greek. He uses the term Adonai, the Lord, word for Lord. But the question is, who is this Lord? Does he really say? Is he still talking about Yahweh here? Notice this verse comes just three verses after he has said that if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Two verses later, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Remember, he just told you that the Christian profession is to profess that it is Jesus who is Lord. And so the clear connection is that those who call on the name of Jesus are those who will be saved. But it's Yahweh in the Old Testament. So I've been studying that pattern and I found it probably half a dozen different places in the New Testament where the New Testament writers are just completely at ease. Taking an Old Testament text, clearly talking of Yahweh and inserting Jesus right in the middle of it. It becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly who they thought Jesus was. And again, they didn't recognize it all at once. It was sort of a glowing recognition, but by the time it's all over, there is no doubt that God has come in the flesh, that this one is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. And it was that Emmanuel, God with us, who went to a cross, shed his blood for the sake of his people to redeem them. In fact, Paul will use the word preaching to the elders. He's preaching to the preachers at Miletus. The preachers come down from Ephesus. And he talks about feed the flock of God, which God purchased with his own blood. Let that sink in. How does God, this invisible spiritual being, have blood? But oh, if God comes to us in human form, if he comes to us as a man, then the blood flowing in the veins of that man can truly, be, truly and properly be called the blood of God who he shed to purchase his church for himself. This explains a lot of things. Uh, when I think of the kenosis of Christ, uh, man, I, I'm overwhelmed with what he was, who he was when he started 
and how low he humbled himself for my sake. Let's stop here. I uh, would exhort you that if you're without him this morning, that you need to call on the name of the Lord. What do you mean by that? Just say, Jesus, 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 real fast? No, I mean what the word name meant. Who he is, his attributes, his power, his ability. Because we'll find Paul preaching on his missionary journeys that he's pointing to a Christ who can do for you what the law never could do. In him, you can find forgiveness of sin from things that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. This person can save you. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, whatever you've done, he's, his blood is sufficient. His righteousness can cover your deficiency. He is that multi-billionaire who's willing to be wed to a poor, filthy sinner like me in order to present me faultless before his Father's throne. I exhort you, come to him. If you don't know him, I hope that during this study, the eyes of your soul are being opened like the disciples' eyes. Wasn't all at once, but gradually, as they watched, as they listened, and they heard him do things that no other man can do, they heard him say things that man, no other man ever said. That fellow in Capernaum who couldn't walk, he turned and says, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And you got the big wig sitting over here in the corner and say, What? What did he say? Huh. He just blasted. We got him now, boys. We got him. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And they're right. They're exactly right. Sin, as we said, is a debt towards God. And who are you to forgive God's debts for him? You see the problem? They're right. And then he says, so, you know, and after all, who will know? If you bring somebody in here that can't walk and put them down here on the floor in front of me, and, you know, we got this big wig preacher in town, he probably heal folks, and you bring this fellow in, and I look at him, and uh, I believe I'd say, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Because who knows? You can't, I mean, if I say, man, take up thy bed and walk, and he just lays there, then everybody knows I don't have any power. So it would be much easier to say, man, thy sins are forgiven. <laughs> Boy, isn't that wonderful? And you say, yeah. And I almost hear the crowd there under that house that day. Oh, me, I thought we were really going to see something. We came here to see him heal this guy, and all he says is, man, thy sins are forgiven. If the Pharisees are right, there's only one who can forgive sin, and that's God. And Jesus knows their thoughts, and he says, so that you will know, so that you'll know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin. Man, get up and walk, and up he pops. And they all leave that house scratching their heads, saying, we have seen strange things today. Yes, you have. You have seen God in the flesh who claims not only to be able to heal a lame man, that's a wonderful miracle. If I'm lame, that's a good one. But the far greater miracle, that this one has power 
to forgive sins. Jesus is saying, you can't see that one, but I'll show you one that you can see to prove to you I can do the one you can't see. That's what I need. Someone with the power to forgive me of my sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the portrait of Christ you paint for us in the New Testament. These wonderful expressions that we saw last night now coming to life in the person of your son. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, ministering in Galilee, journeying to Jerusalem where he's betrayed and crucified and yet resurrected and raised to your right hand to the throne. The God-man did all of this for us. What a Savior you have sent for us. Exactly the kind of Savior we need. So may our eyes be open to behold him and see him as he truly is. And may we call upon his name. May we fall on our face before him, realizing that he alone is the answer for our problem. In Jesus I pray.